what ought to be some of the driving principles which motivate all Christian believers? What are the kinds of concerns that all Christians should have regardless of their own unique and personal and individual circumstances? What should we all still nevertheless share in common? Well, of course, we should all be in agreement in Christian doctrine and the truths of the gospel. Uh, We won't always be, but we should be striving for it. Uh, Terry Johnson reminded us in our study on Wednesday that when we speak about the Lord Jesus, we need to take great care that we think of him and that we speak of him in his person and his works exactly as he is presented to us in the Bible. Nothing more and certainly nothing less. And in the case of Jesus, we learn about him, we learn of him, we learn from him in a number of ways. Those things prophesied about him in the Old Testament, those things describing his life and his ministry in the New Testament, the things that he himself said and did and taught, and the things said of him afterwards by his apostles. And when it comes to men like the Apostle Paul in the Bible, we find that we primarily give attention to their teaching. And on occasions such as this, we come together as the Lord's people on the Lord's Day. We collectively gather around the Word of God so that we can learn the same things together and, God willing, be of one mind through the truths of the Scriptures with the Spirit's aid. But of course, there's far more to the Bible than just that which is explicitly and directly teaching although that is very important, of course. But we also have patterns of conduct and behaviour, both good and bad, which are also given for our instruction. And in the writings of Paul, he frequently provides us with his own commentary on his own life and ministry and his approach to the work that God has called him to do. How he thinks... Uh, what his priorities were, what his motives are, the nature of his prayer life, how he copes with struggles and difficulties and disappointments and setbacks. Because I can tell you, he had far more than most of us will ever know or experience. And so in these closing stages of his letter, he's not He's not teaching doctrine. He's not providing uh, instruction quite so directly. But the things that he shares with his readers are nevertheless full of practical help and application as he sheds some light on, on how he thinks, on what makes this Christian man tick. And even though his calling as the apostle to the Gentiles was quite unique, And his personal gifting, circumstances, all of these things permitted him to fulfil that calling in a way that few others ever could. That does not mean 
that the things that he opens up about here are irrelevant for the rest of us. In fact, they are extremely relevant. Those things which lie at the heart of this man, driving him onward in the service of Christ, they ought to lie at the heart of every Christian. No matter how different, no matter how far removed your life might be from his, these basic underlying things never change. So I want us to use these verses from 22 to 29 to consider three things that we can learn from the Apostle. And the first is this, his plans and passions. Verses 22 to 24. For this reason I've been much hindered from coming to you, but now no longer having a place in these parts, having a great desire these many years to come to you. This has been burning inside of him. Whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. I hope to see you on my journey, to be helped on my way there by you, and to enjoy your company for a while. So for this reason, well, what reason? Well, because of the way he's always tried to plan where he would go in order to preach, which he mentions there in verse 20. As the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul's work has always required him to go to the Gentile peoples to preach the gospel, to tell them of Christ. And he's always tried to make it his aim to go to places where no other gospel preacher has ever been before. So he really was a pioneering missionary in that sense. He wasn't like an itinerant conference speaker roaming from church to church. There's nothing wrong with that, but that wasn't Paul's ministry. His was a ministry of breaking new ground for the gospel. He did visit churches. He'd visit those he'd previously planted. Any he was ever passing on his way, he would call in and and stop and, and spend time with them. Just as he hopes to be able to visit the church in Rome on his way to Spain. He's never been there, but that's one of his great plans. Paul's basic strategy was to travel along all the main established roads and trade routes and to preach in all the major towns and cities so that churches could be established in all of those main regions across the Roman Empire. He didn't try to reach every single town and village. He would hope that those local churches that have been established, that they would go out from where they are and reach others also. And as far as the the eastern and the central Mediterranean area is concerned, uh, Paul considers that his job in breaking new ground for the gospel is about done. And now he wants to venture further west. And He has Spain in his sights. But his plans and his passions are always the same, the gospel of Christ. Now, Rome, of course, was the most strategic city of them all, the beating heart of the Roman Empire. And so we can understand his concern 
that the church that is there would be a solid, dependable, biblical, gospel witness in this most important of Gentile cities and this most Gentile of Gentile cities. That was his plan because that was his passion. And notice that Paul doesn't think it wrong or inappropriate to expect that the church in Rome will assist him in his onward journey to Spain. Or why would he not think it inappropriate that they should help him in that way? Well, because Paul expects that any church that has a, a true care for the spreading of the gospel is not going to hesitate for one moment in providing help and resources for a pioneering missionary like himself. Of course the church in Rome is going to want to help him. Because this is not about greed in Paul. This is not about fleecing others for his own benefit. This is about supporting the feet of those who are taking the good news of the gospel to other parts of the world to take Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. Of course the Roman church will help him in this. And we see that you and I need to have that same passion. And if we don't, we ought to be praying that God will grant it to us, that we will be like-minded with these examples that are laid before us in the Bible. As a church, we ought to have a care for those who've never heard and they might be on the far side of the world. And there needs to be someone sent to them. Maybe from here, there is someone who needs to go. Or they might be on your doorstep. They might be in the office or classroom that you'll be in tomorrow. Maybe in the home that you're going back to straight after this service. And there, you too must have that same passion for the gospel of Christ. But there's more to it than that in Paul. Paul's heart runs deeper than that. When faced with the possibility of being with them, he longs that they also might be helped and encouraged spiritually, that they might minister the things of Christ and his word to one another. This is his heart for them. This is all part of what he means by enjoying their company for a while. Enjoying their company for a while means much more than sharing a cup of tea for an hour before he's off and on his way again. As good as sharing a cup of tea can be. But what was it that Paul said in the very opening chapter of this letter from verse 9. He said, God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you. Why? that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. 
that we might edify one another in the things of God, he's saying. I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. He wants them to be mutually helped and edified and encouraged in the faith. This also is Paul's heart. These are his plans and passions. They must be ours as well. It begins here amongst ourselves as we have opportunity and with other believers too. Paul's extensive travel was somewhat unique. But perhaps we need to be thinking more about how we can encourage others in our own church, in other churches close by, other churches perhaps in other parts of the country, other churches across the world. Well, we're very thankful that in some measure we are able to do that and we do seek to do that, but is there more we can do? Is there more we should be doing? Should we be giving ourselves more fully to these things? One point that can't be overlooked when we think about the things that Paul is saying here is that whilst Paul would get to visit Rome, it would be with Caesar paying all his travel expenses. And without the opportunity for him to visit the church in the way that he'd imagined, that planned trip to Spain would never materialise. You'll see in verse 25, Paul's intention to return to Jerusalem with a gift, and we'll consider that a bit more fully in a moment. Well, Paul did make it back to Jerusalem, but there he was met with all kinds of opposition, which resulted in him being arrested. And then, on account of him being a Roman citizen, he was allowed to ask for his case to be brought before Caesar. And so he was taken to Rome under house arrest by the Romans, And he would spend two years in Rome, confined to a house rather than a prison, but still under arrest and in chains. The closing chapters of the book of Acts cover those events. His plan to go to Rome was accomplished, but God had other ideas about how it might be done and what would happen when he got there. And yet, it proved to be the most amazing opportunity for the gospel. In his house arrest, he was constantly chained to a Roman guard. And the guards who were used were those of Caesar's own household. And Paul had a captive audience, literally. If ever there's been a captive audience, those guards were then chained to him. They couldn't escape. So, of course, he spoke to them about Christ. And they, in turn, would take that message of the gospel back into Caesar's household. And so the gospel was getting right into the household of Caesar himself. During that same time, he wrote four of his letters, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Paul mentions his imprisonment in chapters 1 and 4 of his letter to the Philippians where at the end of that letter he confirms that members of the household of Caesar have been saved. Wonderful. 
Could that have been accomplished any other way? Well, it was God's way. His plans and passions had led to that. And although God's plans turned out to be different, it didn't deter his passion for the gospel one bit. An interesting fact in those accounts is that Paul has no bitterness whatsoever over his chains. He bears no grudges against his captors. He raises no complaints about being on the receiving end of undeserved abuse and how awful it is that he's being treated like this, which would no doubt be the majority response today. There's none of that in Paul. Even Caesar's palace guards have come to understand that Paul's chains are in Christ, Philippians 1.13. And in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, he, he refuses to refer to himself as a prisoner of Rome. No, he calls himself a prisoner of Christ. Why? Because he is a prisoner in Rome, because that's exactly where Christ has put him. That's exactly where Christ needs him to be for the gospel opportunities which await him there. That's a kind of thinking that isn't often found amongst the Lord's people today, but it should be. It should be a kind of thinking found in you and me. To see the gospel overriding everything else. To see the opportunities for gospel witness which override everything else. This is what every Christian ought to be. And what else can we learn? Well, why did he want to go back to Jerusalem? Well, secondly, we learn about his concern and care. His concern and care from verse 25 through to the beginning of uh, verse 28. I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. There's a gift to be given. Now, as Paul is writing, he is in Corinth, which is in southern Greece. Now, if Paul were to travel from Jerusalem to Spain, Corinth isn't that far short of halfway. So as he's already in Corinth, why not just go directly to Spain from there? To go from Corinth eastwards back to Jerusalem is to go in the complete opposite direction from Spain in the west. He's literally doubling the length of his journey. Why would he do that? It's because of his concern and care for the brethren back in Jerusalem. The Jerusalem church has undergone much persecution. We know also that some years earlier there'd been a very severe famine. And many of the poor believers in Jerusalem are really struggling. Things are really tough for the church in Jerusalem. And the Gentile believers in Macedonia, that's to the north of Greece, 
and also the believers in Achaia, verse 26, they've had a collection. And they're sending a financial gift to the church in Jerusalem. And Paul intends to take it personally and deliver it. He says he wants to minister to the saints in Jerusalem, verse 25. And whilst that will certainly mean that he wants to be able to minister the word of God to them, I believe he also means by that that even this financial gift is a means of ministry to them in providing for their need. And the point is that this was what was in the heart of these Gentile believers for the Jewish believers back in Jerusalem. They want to minister to the Jerusalem church. What can they do for them? From such a distance, well, they can send money to provide for their needs at least. Surely they're also praying for them. The Gentile believers feel a particular debt towards the Jerusalem church, verse 27. It was the Jerusalem church which sent out men like Paul and those who worked alongside him. It was the Jerusalem church primarily which funded and supported Paul's missionary journeys. Others joined in, of course, but it all originated in Jerusalem. It was because of that that they've received the gospel in places like Macedonia and Achaia, they would never have known Christ. They would never have been saved were it not for this sending church in Jerusalem. What a debt of gratitude they feel towards these brothers and sisters. They've never met them, but their hearts are for them. And Paul says now they have a duty to provide for this church, knowing the need that they're in. The blessing they've received in having the gospel brought to them is the greatest blessing of all, far surpassing any other that ever could have been brought to them. I wonder if that's how you view your faith in Christ, a blessing far surpassing anything else that you've ever had, will ever own, will ever possess, to know Christ. Is Christ for you far and away the single biggest blessing in your life? Is it obvious that that is so? Does that one blessing that you've received in Christ, your salvation, does that now govern everything else about you? Here is the heart of these Gentile believers. Their thinking is like this, when we consider what it is that we've received from them, how can we not put our hands in our pocket and provide for them in their time of need? How could we even find ourselves trying to come up with excuses not to help them? This meagre gift of money is nothing compared to their gifts to us. And so they're ready to give so generously towards the, Lord people, the Lord's people. And surely we see in these Gentile churches that this in part is the result of Paul's teaching and Paul's example. We see here that this is what lies at the heart of Christian fellowship. 
this, this belonging one to the other, fellow workers, family members, fellow citizens in Christ's kingdom. And Paul has this deep concern and care. I'm taking this gift personally. I want them to know of the love that these Gentile converts have for them. You see that phrase at the beginning of verse 28, when I have sealed to them this fruit. This gift which comes from the hearts of these Macedonian brethren. This love that the Spirit of God has placed in their hearts. This gift which is the evidence of God's grace at work in the hearts of these uh, Gentile believers. And Paul says, I want to seal it. I want to confirm it. I want the church in Jerusalem to be in no doubt about who this gift is from and why it is they've sent it. And it's because that we are all in Christ. I don't want there to be any misunderstanding or any ambiguity at all about this gift, where it's come from, why it's been given, and how it can be properly used. What a blessing and an encouragement this will be to the Jerusalem church. How honouring to Christ this is going to be. And so Paul shows us that whilst he has this inner drive to take the gospel to those who've never heard, and the next big destination is Spain, he's not so blinkered by this one thing that he neglects other Christian duties and responsibilities. He maintains those as well. So you can't say, well, I'm all about evangelism, so I have no time for their needs, they'll just have to suffer. How can that be in the heart of a Christian man? Do you remember the example we saw in Christ this morning as he spent three days healing all the people brought to him in Decapolis? There is this wholeness to Paul's faith. There is this roundedness to Paul's faith. He understands that there is a balance to be struck in his life in allotting time and resources to various needs that are there. Unbelievers have the need of the gospel, yes, but believers have needs which must be met too and ought not to be ignored because actually even this in caring for the Jerusalem church is all still part of gospel ministry in Paul's eyes. You'll find other occasions, of course, when Paul sometimes sends others in his place so that he can continue elsewhere, because he can't be everywhere at once. But this time it must be him who goes. So there's a lot of practical example in Paul's writings. There's such a help for us to think through all the different duties and responsibilities which fall upon our shoulders. We see them falling upon Paul and others, and we're helped in the choices and decisions that they make deep concern for the unconverted balanced against a deep love and care for those who've already been saved. Well, these ought to be the things uh, that we give ourselves to. Uh, these ought to be the kinds of decisions that, that we're constantly juggling ourselves as believers and as a local church. It's so helpful uh, as Paul gives us this commentary on his own life, his own thoughts, his own heart. And as he continues, thirdly, we see 
his eagerness and his expectation. Eagerness and expectation from verse 28. Once I've done this in Jerusalem, I shall go by way of you to Spain. Now Paul's had many experiences when God has redirected him. He's had many experiences when outcomes had not been as he'd hoped for, outcomes have not been as he was planning for. Sometimes the gospel has a good reception. Sometimes he spends months in one place as a new church is established and he teaches the new believers. But frequently he also had all kinds of opposition which cut short his preaching. Violent mobs running him out of town, even trying to kill him. He's had to just abandon this place and move on to another. Nevertheless, he continues to make his plans. His eagerness isn't diminished. His expectation never fails or wavers. Often his own plans and desires are thwarted, but on he presses, eager, expectant. His longed-for visit to Rome is still going to have to wait for now, but on he presses nevertheless. Look out Spain, here I come, but I'll be travelling via Rome so that I can come and meet you on my way. Well, as I've explained, Paul would never get to Spain and his journey to Rome would not be as he expected. And yet his gospel ministry there was of a sort that he couldn't have imagined in a million years. What remarkable things God achieved through his servant in the heart of Caesar's household in Rome. But you see, it was Paul's eagerness and it was Paul's expectation that actually put him in these situations that God would use. I must do this thing in Jerusalem with this gift, then to Rome, then to Spain. And it's this drive in Paul and it's this pressing on in Paul which puts him in places and situations that God then uses and takes even though he changes them, but God then uses those things in ways that Paul hadn't imagined. Someone once said, even God can't steer a parked car. It has to be moving. Kind of get what they mean. It was Paul's eagerness and zeal to serve that enables God to redirect him. It's because Paul was constantly seeking to move forward in serving the Lord that the Lord is able to say, yes, great, Paul, but actually not that way, this way. Yes, that's great, Paul, but actually uh, not that audience for the gospel, this one. It's Paul's eagerness and zeal to serve that enable God to redirect him in his ways and in his time and for his purposes. And then this little section concludes at verse 29, I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Well, he did arrive in Rome in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. It wasn't how he'd planned, but what fruit was born. What, what's in Paul's heart as he, as he says what he says there in verse 29? Well, I believe it's this. God, by his Spirit, 
will use me to teach and encourage you in the fullest possible measure. And likewise, I know that you will be an abundant blessing to me. Christ will be at the centre of all our fellowship and of all our conversation and the gifts and the graces which we now have in Christ. That's going to ensure that everything will be done for our mutual edification and for the glory of God and for the name of Christ to be exalted. That's what's in Paul's heart as he says these things. My coming to you will be the next best thing to Christ himself coming to you. And this isn't, this isn't Paul inflating himself. This isn't Paul saying, don't worry, Rome, the big man's coming. No, 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 that's not, what's, that's not what's in his heart. This is Paul's confidence in that God, in that which God will do, in Christ, by his Spirit. God's going to be at work when I come to you. What is it that will make their time together so special? It will be their shared union in Christ and Christ's concern for his church. So Paul has this, this eagerness and this expectation that God will do great things because God is a faithful God who loves his people and who works in this world through his church. And because of the kind of heart this man has, God is able to redirect his servant in the most remarkable ways. He's able to completely uh, overtake his circumstances in ways that Paul could never have imagined. And because of the heart that Paul had, he is able to humbly accept it all and press on plans and passions, concern and care, eagerness and expectation. These are the things that God uses in his people for his glory. May that describe you and me, that God may turn and direct and use us as he will for his praise.